Moving along through the book of Romans, and if you'd stand for the reading of God's word, we want to focus on three more verses this morning. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Paul writes this, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You may be seated. John 3.16 is a famous and well-known declaration of God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever shall receive him you know I, I just whoever believes in him I thought I knew that verse whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life the passage before us this morning is a great exposition on the love of God which we had was mentioned in the last verse of our sermon last Sunday in verse 5 where it says the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. When it says it's been poured out, it wasn't just a meager amount. It wasn't drip, drip, drip. It's, it's, a, it's a profusion of love. It's a permeation of love. It's a, it's a fullness of love. And uh, the great evidence of God's love for us was not in the humiliation of Christ's incarnation. And I don't minimize that at all because the glorious, majestic God who was with God the Father for all of eternity came down and incarnated, that is, he became flesh in our midst for the purpose of going to a cross. The... uh, Expression and evidence of God's love is not in the selfless life of Christ. And in him we have the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the creator of the whole universe who comes down not to put a focus on himself but to serve other people. The evidence of God's love is not in his fantastic teaching. And Jesus Christ was a teacher who was masterful in teaching. In this last week I was reading in Luke and it described this teaching as being gracious and authoritative. And that's a wonderful blend. There's never been a better teacher in regard to content or methodology in all of history. Take the best teacher at Stanford, the best teacher at Harvard, The best teacher at Oxford, Jesus Christ excels all of them. The expression of God's love was not in the unparalleled miracles of Jesus Christ. And if you read through the Gospels, you can't help but be impressed with the fact that these miracles were a widespread variety of miracles, all kinds of them feeding 5,000 people, calming storms, raising the dead, 
healing blind eyes and lame legs and, and what have you, casting out demons. Never has there been more miracles in a short brief time, that brief span of time than when Jesus Christ was walking on earth. But listen to me. It was his death that displayed unparalleled love. My first point this morning is the subjects of his death in verse 6. And the first description of these subjects is helpless. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We were still helpless. There wasn't any lapse in our helplessness. There wasn't any improvement in our helplessness. Now this means a total inability before God. Man is spiritually incapable. Now how is he spiritually incapable? Well, he cannot understand spiritual truth. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.14, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. This is just another way of saying that a person is dead spiritually. We cannot understand the love of God apart from the free activity of the Spirit of God in our lives. Man is also spiritually incapable because he is totally unable to please God. The very best works that he can produce fall infinitely short of God's holy standards. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Now that's not how they look on a human plane. Our right things that we do may impress others, and often we are very impressed with them as well. But this verse tells us how we look to God when we have done our very, very best. It is sort of like taking a refreshing shower and then putting on the dirtiest, filthiest clothes you could ever imagine. I like what one commentary wrote. When we were powerless to escape from our sin, powerless to escape death, powerless to resist Satan, and powerless to please him in any way, God amazingly sent his son to die on our behalf. We were and are totally unworthy of such love. And when I wrote this, it was Valentine's Day. That's the day when human love is emphasized. Natural human love is based primarily on how attractive a person is to us. It most usually also is dependent upon their response to us. If they respond well to us, we will love them. Oftentimes, we project this kind of love upward onto God. And then we believe that, in a wrong way, that if we act correctly and if we respond correctly, then God will love us. That's not representative of God's love at all. Charles Hodges in his commentary on Romans develops this concept further and says, 
If God loved us because we loved him, he would love us only so long as we love him. And on that condition and then our salvation would depend on the constancy of our treacherous hearts. But as God loved us as sinners, as Christ died for the ungodly, our salvation depends, as the apostle argues, not on our loveliness, but on the constancy of the love of God. Man is unable to obey God. This is the third way we are spiritually helpless. Paul has been working on this concept throughout the first four chapters of the book of Romans. Listen to these verses in Romans 3, 10 through 12 and verse 20. As it is written, and now Paul quotes the Old Testament. That's why these are in caps. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Oh, wow, that's pretty inclusive, isn't it? There's no exceptions to that one. Then verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. When God set up his laws for us to live by, we all break them. Now, we don't break all of them. But as James says, if you break one, you are a lawbreaker. And we break more than one. It is extremely important to realize our own inability and incapacity. For to the extent that we realize our inability and incapacity, then and only then will we re- recognize how helpless we are and we will then realize the in-depth nature of the love of God for us. In fact, at the right time rested on men being without strength. There had to be a period of time during which men would struggle and realize their own inability spiritually. Of course, the timing of Christ's coming and of his death was perfect in other regards as well. The language of the day was correct. The Greek language was superior to the Hebrew language in order to express the nuances of the theology that God wanted placed in the New Testament, which the Hebrew would not have been able to convey. Rome was in charge of the world at this time. There was peace, and they had developed a highway system. Both of these were crucial for the spreading of truth and the building of the church back here. Now come back with me in your thinking to the emphasis of the verse. We are helpless and ungodly before a perfect and holy God. If it were possible for us to to deserve his love, we would have to be perfect, and none of us are. This brings to my mind a, a hymn. It says, I am not worthy of the least of his favor, but Jesus left heaven for me. The word became flesh and he died as my savior, forsaken on dark Calvary. I am not worthy, this dull tongue repeats it. 
I am not worthy this heart gladly beats it. But now listen to this. Jesus left heaven to die in my place. What mercy, what love, and what grace. The second description in the last part of verse 6 is ungodly. There are many ways that it can be said that man is ungodly. First of all, he is unlike God. In the beginning, man was made in the image of God. This was the greatest thing about man. His glory, his real dignity was being made in the image of God. But sin came in in Genesis chapter 3. And the image of God and man was terribly defaced. Man is now unlike God in many ways. Even so, he is still unlike the animals because he still has the image of God and characteristics of the likeness of God which are still there even though they have been marred. So man is unlike God. Secondly, man is without love for God. Man is actively opposed to God. He is a willing enemy with a deep hatred for God and for his law. He has no desire for God. He lives as though there were no God. He blanks God out of all his thoughts. And you might say, well, that's, that's extreme. Well, then you can sort of modify it and make it somebody that's a lot nicer, who still doesn't have any place in their life for God, who pushes him out, who doesn't think a whole lot about him, doesn't give him much place in his or her life, and it's the same basic thing. It's just on one extreme or the other. The whole world is ungodly. The most religious person is ungodly. All are by nature ungodly, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. These are the people that Christ died for. Those who are helpless. Those who are ungodly. That's us incredible he died for us the next two verses are merely an elaboration on verse 6 my second point this morning is the uniqueness of his death this type of love is unparalleled on a human level just before Valentine's Day an article came out in the Mercury News which began this way love we want it we get it, we lose it, we try again. That's because love is what binds us, beckons us, blinds us, and brings us home. The author goes on to say this. Acts of service are an overlooked love language that when practiced create a great buffer and makes partners feel more cherished. Just to summarize that again, acts of service make the recipient of love feel cherished. Human love at its best is faulty and inconsistent. But when we focus on God's love for us, it's neither faulty nor inconsistent. The love of God for us is unconditional. To the degree that Jesus Christ was willing to die for us, 
In God's eyes, he died for those who were unrighteous, undeserving, and unlovable. We understand that the death of Christ for us was an infinite act of loving service. So therefore, the love of God for us in the cross of Jesus Christ should make us feel cherished by the living God. What I said earlier was this type of love is unparalleled on a human level. Paul goes on in verse 7 to explain this concept further. The first illustration is in the first part of verse 7. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. The word righteous speaks of a person who is upright, who keeps the law. He honors the commandments. He is very correct in his behavior. The second illustration is in the last half of the verse. Though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. The good man might more readily elicit such a great sacrifice. He is the type of man who is not only righteous, but he goes beyond this. He is motivated by love. He is more than merely correct. To understand this further, the difference between righteous and good, we might have it illustrated by two piano players. The first one reads the notes correctly and plays them accurately, and his timing is perfect. And after we hear this piano player, we say, now that's a real great technician. The second piano player does all the above. He plays the notes correctly, his timing is correct, but he adds something to it. He adds his whole heart to it. It's a passion for him. And then we recognize that this is not just a technician. This is an artist. His playing thrills the listener on a deep emotional level. Now we have all heard of heartwarming stories of heroes who have given their lives sacrificially for others. I, I searched on the internet and found this story God, Godwin was 33 years old and was an attorney from Nigeria. He was in New York City and he was a security guard at the World Trade Center while he studied to take his New York bar exam so he could be an attorney in the United States. He dreamed of bringing his family to the United States. He missed them incredibly. That day when the two planes hit the two towers, he could have run and lived. But instead he stayed as a security guard and he caused many, many people to escape and run to freedom, most of which he did not know at all. And he left behind a wife and three children, seven years old, five year old, years old and one year old. That is a great sacrifice. But the one we're looking at this morning is infinitely more amazing. My final point this morning is the demonstration from his death in verse 8. 
What men can scarcely do for a good person, God has done abundantly for the vile and despicable. And we don't like to view ourselves this way. We prefer to view ourselves as nice people. And we are, for the most part, nice people. Not all. There are some nasty people. Now, as I look out at you, I want you to know I don't, I'm not looking at anybody here and regarding you as a nasty people. In this verse, we turn away from what we may think about each other. We turn to how we compare to an infinite, pure, and holy God who hates every sinful thought, attitude, and action. And yet, he loves us who repeatedly are guilty of all kinds of these three. Of sinful thoughts, of sinful attitudes, of sinful actions. When we think of sinners, we like to think about those who are people that are terrible, that have done awful things that we have never done. I googled the worst sinners on the internet. It was interesting what I found. Here's one statement. If we create a list of historically significant sinners, I have a feeling our list would be filled with people like Stalin and Hitler. We'd fill our list with figures behind mass murders, bombings, terrorism, or serious serial killers. And rightfully so, when it comes to the atrocities of the evil that these people committed, it is unparalleled. And yet the internet kept pointing back to the Apostle Paul and his own confession in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, which says, It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul had already reminded his readers in verse 13, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and this was at the church of Jesus Christ in the day. May I remind you of another Pauline statement. All have sinned. God does not grade on the curve when it comes to sin. His standards never change. He says, be holy as I am holy. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And none of us are. So we're all sinners. We must understand and admit this to begin to understand the marvelous love of God for us in the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Now it's statement in verse 8, the first part. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. Christ died for us. There's a sharp contrast here in the word but. The same idea is seen in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Get that. Because of his great love with which he loved us. 
even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God proves or demonstrates his great love for us by his son dying for us. Now it's object in the last part of verse 8. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were not righteous. We were not good. Remember the verses I read to you early from chapter 3. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who does good. There is not even one. We were ungodly. We were without strength. We were helpless. We were sinners. Man has missed the mark. He has come short of God's standard. He is an offender, a transgressor. So man is described this way by Paul in Titus 3.3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Sinners, hateful creatures, ugly, foul, vile, despicable, desperate, hurl your epithets and still you have not said enough. The sinner is an abomination. He is a monstrosity in God's universe. He is altogether vile and hateful. Against that dark, discouraging picture I've attempted to paint, the love of God comes shining through like the brightest sunshine after a gloomy, dismal, cloud-filled day. Here's the point. No matter what you have done in your life, God loves you. No matter how good you've been in your life, you still are a sinner and you need a savior. And God loves you. An outstanding young man jumped into the waters to save a lost, uh, and lost his life by saving a drunken man. The comment was made, what a shame for a fine young man to give his life for a worthless bum. This is nothing compared to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for sinners. His sacrifice for us. He as God become God-man, plunged himself into the foul waters of sin to save us who were not attractive at all to a sinless and a pure God. As we remember the death of Christ on the cross, let us remember our own total unworthiness. We were helpless and ungodly as well as unworthy. On the basis of this, we can then begin to see and understand the incomprehensible, lofty, magnificent, unparalleled love of God and of Jesus Christ for us.
Now, I painted both sides of the picture this morning. I painted the fact we're sinners, that this is awful, that this is wretched, that this is miserable, this is vile. But in contrast to that, I've tried to paint in your thinking the marvelous, incredible, wonderful, high love of God for each of us. This is amazing love. I want you to focus on his love for you this morning. If you've never yet come into the family of God, this is the first proper expression of appreciation for the love of God for you. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, and you began to see the love of God for you, and how unworthy you were of that, and how needy you were for his love, then it's time to say to God, God, if you would do this for me, then I'm going to surrender my life to you, the whole rest of my life for you. I'm going to live for you. I'm not going to live as the average person lives in this world who lives for his own personal kingdom, who does the things that would satisfy him and meet his own personal needs. It is time for Christians in this church and around America to sell out for God. Let's pray. Father, touch us. We don't want to play church. We want to express back to you the proper response to this incomprehensible love that you would die for us, that you would give your life for us. God, touch us by the Holy Spirit. Change us. Wean us from this world. Father, we pray that we would see beyond this world to an eternity with you and live in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen.